In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we find the text for our lesson this morning. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The author is writing to a group of Hebrew or Jewish Christians. And these people are not finding the new life of which they have entered in on. They're not finding this new life to be easy. On the contrary, they're finding this life to be distressingly full of problems and difficulties. They're being persecuted. They're being robbed of their goods. There are bitter foes within and there are bitter foes without. And some of these Jewish Christians are therefore greatly discouraged. More than one of them is half persuaded that their conversion to Jesus Christ and their conversion to Christianity had been a mistake. And some of them are therefore longingly looking back to their old way of life. And they're wondering if they should just completely renounce Christianity as a futility. And so it's to hearten and encourage these saints that the author writes this letter to the Hebrews. He reminds them that their crucified Master is God's supreme revelation. And He urges them to hold fast their profession. He warns them against falling short of the grace of God. In chapter 11, we refer to that sometimes as God's hall of fame of faith. But what the writer does in chapter 11 is call to the witness stand, if you will, saint after saint after saint. And they all give testimony to the value of faith and to the reality of things not seen. And the writer urges them, do not lose courage. And he says you need to lay aside every weight. Everything that's holding you back and everything that's holding you down, lay aside every weight and run with patience the race. But then he does something else. He does more than that. He does more than urge upon them the importance and the necessity of being loyal to their faith. He tells them how they can be sure that they'll win. In our text, He gives them some very definite and very helpful directions in living the Christian life. He tells them how they can make their life count in the very finest fashion. Folks, His instructions are just as pertinent today in the 21st century as they were when they were written in the 1st century. 
And we would be well served to listen to this experienced saint. He gives to them and He gives to us instructions on how to make a success of Christian living. His very first instruction to them is, let us run. Being a Christian is a strenuous thing. It's an exacting business. And what the writer is doing, he's doing his best to encourage these stumbling, faltering saints. But he does not encourage them by concealing the facts. He doesn't encourage them and tell them with a big smile and a syrupy voice that this is going to be the best life that they've ever experienced. He does not encourage them by telling them that the Christian life is the easiest way to get through life. Because it's not. And He doesn't make any kind of an appeal to their cowardice or to their love of ease. What He does appeal to is the heroic in them. Quite frankly, He tells them to follow Jesus, that's going to mean conflict. To follow Jesus means there's a race to be run. It means there's a battle to be fought. And when He tells them there's a race to run and a battle to be fought and conflicts to be encountered, folks, He's in harmony with the entirety of the New Testament. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, do you remember what he told them to do? He encouraged them to put on the whole armor of God. Because he said in this way, putting on the whole armor of God, you'll be able to face the craftiness of the devil. Friends, there are outward and visible foes to the cause of Christ that are strong and powerful. But these outward and visible foes that are strong and powerful are nothing, he warns us, compared to the foes and the enemies that are spiritual and that are unseen. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. We are therefore to put on the whole armor of God to be able to stand in the day of battle. And then, having fought the battle through to the finish, we can remain victors. And Paul's words, they're in harmony with the teachings of Jesus. You remember they asked Jesus one day, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus said, strive, strive to enter in at the straight gate. Have you ever thought about that word? That word, strive. Folks, that's a muscular word. That's a word with panting breath and grimy hands. That's a word whose face is flecked with blood. That word, strive, that's a word that's at home on the athletic field. 
We're to strive in a game. It's a word that's at home on the field of battle. We're to strive as if we're in a deadly conflict. Strive. It's a word that finds its home in Gethsemane that night when Jesus was praying. Can you see Him? Can you see Him in the garden? He leaves Peter and James and John. He goes further into the garden and He prays and He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me, not My will, but Thine be done. He prayed that prayer three times. And it tells us that as He prayed that prayer the third time, that sweat as if it were great drops of blood fell from His brow. Jesus was striving in prayer. And the writer says, let us run. That statement. That statement speaks of white heat earnestness. To make life count. Whether it's in the home, whether it's in school, whether it's at work, whether it's in business, whether it's in the church. To make life count anywhere. We have to give it our best. And to make life count as a Christian is no exception. Now, I'm quite aware of something. I've been around the block a couple of times. I've been to a county fair. I've been to two hog callings. And white heat earnestness is not the impression a person would get from the average church anywhere. If a visitor came among us from another planet, they would not likely be greatly impressed by our earnestness, by our sincerity, or our commitment. They would likely see little of the ardor of the crusaders. And they would likely see very little of the grim determination of an athletic team about to take the field of contest or a group of soldiers going into battle. You listening? This is one of our most glaring sins in the church today all over this world. It's a, it's a sin that accounts for a great deal of the failure of the church all over this world. An indifferent hair, no matter how fleet-footed he is, will always lose the race to a tortoise who's in earnest and serious enough to keep running at his very best. But we often don't run at our very best. But the writer said, let us lay away, lay aside every weight. And the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run the race that is set before us. Let's run toward the goal. As Paul said, I press toward the prize for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's run toward that goal 
That goalpost is heaven. And we don't want to run like Jim Marshall or Roy Regals. Do you know who either one of those guys were? Roy Regals played football for the University of Southern California. And in the 1929 Rose Bowl, playing against Georgia, he scooped up a fumble and headed toward the goal line. Uh, just one problem, it was his own goal line. He ran the wrong way. And on the ensuing safety, that was the margin of victory. And his team lost the game. Years later, in 1964, Jim Marshall played on the defensive line for the Minnesota Vikings. They were playing the San Francisco 49ers. Jim Marshall scooped up a fumble and he got turned around and ran 66 yards to score a safety for the San Francisco 49ers. They took their eyes off the goal. You also know the answer to two trivia questions sometime if you're playing Trivia Pursuit NFL Edition. The point is, we keep our eyes on the goal and that goal is a home with heaven and heaven with God. And we run and we strip ourselves of every handicap. Let us lay aside every weight, he said, and let us lay aside the sin that just so easily beset us. It's just common sense that we lay aside the handicaps. Our first and our supreme objective is to win the race, and nothing else really matters. And everything that's going to help us win the race, we take it. And everything that's going to hinder us in that race... We put it aside. And we ought to be willing to do that to obtain that incorruptible crown. Over and over and over again. That's what an athlete does to obtain a crown that is at once very fleeting and of very little worth. To win the race, we've got to put sin aside. And that doesn't mean just those great glaring sins. You know, we read that list of sins in Galatians 4. Adultery, murder, fornication, drunkenness. Oh yeah, well, stealing. Yeah, well, we don't do that. Well, folks, there's more to sin than just those great sins of passion. I don't think that I'm speaking to anybody that's going to go out this afternoon, stick up a liquor store, and shoot the clerk. I just don't think that's going to happen. But you know, also among those works of the flesh are things like hatred, strife, those sins of attitude, having hatred in my heart, having a heart that's not forgiving, not having love in my heart for others. Nothing hampers us more than unconfessed and unrepented of sin in our lives. And nothing else so clips us of our strength. Think how grandly adequate Samson was till he broke his vow of consecration. And breaking his vow of consecration, his strength went from him and he became weak like any other man. We put aside every sin, every weight, 
taking away to something that's not necessarily sinful in itself. There are a lot of things that are good in themselves, but we allow them to become weights and hold us back. Things that ought to help us that become handicapped. And lay aside every weight. Whatever helps, cling to it. Whatever hurts, throw it away. How many are there in our world today? How many are there in in the church today, all over the world, that could be swift runners for Jesus Christ, who are going at a snail's pace? Because they don't lay aside the weights. The story is told that many years ago, over in the hills of Tennessee, a man killed a great bald eagle. And he killed that eagle with a charge of birdshot. And the hunter wondered how. How this great, massive eagle with his great wingspan, the eagle that was so wild, that flew and soared so high normally, would allow himself to get close enough to be killed with birdshot. It was a magnificent bird. He measured seven feet from tip to tip. But when the hunter took a closer look at that eagle, he found there was an old steel trap clinging to one of its legs. The trap didn't kill the eagle. And the trap didn't clip the eagle's wings. But the weight of that trap held that eagle so close to the earth that it proved to be the death of him. That's why the writer said, lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us. What a parable that story of that eagle is for us, folks. What a great spread of wings some of us have. How greatly and grandly we could soar and win the race. But we're weighted down. We stay close to the earth and we become easy prey. And that's true of people because, not because they renounce their faith altogether, not because they insist upon clinging to open sin, but because we refuse to lay aside every weight. We all have them. I don't know what yours is. You don't know what mine is. So there. Its name doesn't matter. It can be business. It can be too many social engagements. It can be too much time spent with family. It can be that. Or it can be that. It can even be watching too much football. But whatever it is, it can be something that's altogether harmless in itself. But if it robs us of possibilities, if it makes us fail in the race, it becomes as tragic and as ruinous as open sin. We've got to lay aside every weight. And we've got to run with patience, stripped of all handicaps, and exercise patient endurance. This race that we're in, folks, it's not a hundred yard dash. It's a long cross-country run that stretches way yonder into the horizon. 
So if we're going to win, we have to have patience. We've got to have patience with ourselves. We can't just give up in despair at our first failure. And we've got to have patience with others. With their failures. And their limitations. And we've got to have patience with God. I mean, after all, God doesn't always act the way we think He should. And the writer, in order to help us winning and keep the grace of patience, he gives us some considerations. Some are losing patience because they meet opposition. They find living this Christian life is difficult. And the writer says, don't be impatient. Opposition is to be expected. Any piece of driftwood can float downstream. To go against the current requires effort. Nowhere in this book, you can go from Genesis to Revelation, nowhere does God promise exemption from conflict. Nowhere does God promise to carry us upward to the skies on flowery beds of ease. It's not there. And Jesus didn't find life to be easy. Jesus had to endure the contradictions of sinners. And if we find ourselves opposed, we've got to remember Jesus was opposed also. If we find the race is strenuous uphill business, we're only sharing the experience of all the saints. We cannot allow the opposition that we meet to destroy our patience. And he urges them to patience, he said, because they have no right to lose heart under so slight a persecution as they've suffered up to that point. Many of those he mentions in Hebrews 11, whose names they honor, they were persecuted even to death. And they didn't lose patience. They kept their patience and they died in the faith. He says, don't give up. You've not yet gone the limit. You've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Before you quit, before you give up, before you say there's nothing in Christianity, He says, give it a fair test. If you've staked your life on Jesus and He's failed you, then you've got a right to be impatient, but until then, you don't. He encourages them to have patience. Because He tells them in that Hebrew letter, that suffering is not a mark of God's displeasure. It's a mark of God's sonship. He says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. If you're finding life a bit stormy, it's because God is dealing with you as with His own children. It's a mark of His love. It's not a mark of His forgetfulness. God is our Father. You know, I remember there were times when I was growing up that J.R. would come in and say, son, let's go back to the bedroom. And he'd start reaching for his belt. Right away, my analytical mind told me this was not something I was going to enjoy. And he would tell me what I had done wrong. 
And he'd say, son, I'm going to have to whip you. I love you and that's the reason I'm doing this. He said, I'd rather whip you now than bail you out of jail later. And at the time I'm thinking, yeah, you're whipping me because you love me. That's a funny way of showing it. In retrospect, he did a pretty fair job. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. God is our Father, and sometimes God has to take His belt to us. Because He loves us. Suffering is not necessarily an evil. It may be a means of great good. The most tenderest hearts you'll ever find are usually those hearts that have been broken. The choicest souls among the saints of God you'll ever meet are those that have been to Gethsemane for their schooling. So be patient. Because someday God will kiss your tears into jewels and change your sorrows into songs. Now here's the final direction He gives. He says, run the race. Run the race stripped of every handicap. Run the race looking to Jesus. Literally, we are to look away from everything else to look to Jesus Christ. That is to have our eyes fixed on Jesus and our eyes fixed on Jesus alone. We don't fix our eyes upon our assets. And neither do we fix our eyes upon our liabilities. We look to Jesus. You remember Peter when he stepped over the side of the boat and he began to walk to Jesus on the water? While he kept his eyes upon Jesus, while he focused on Jesus, he walked on that water, but he saw the wind and the waves and he took away from Jesus and he went swimming. But as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he stayed on top of that water. We look to Jesus as our example. We don't undertake to run the race looking at all the hypocrites we might have known at some point in our lives. We don't look to those that have given up and abandoned the enterprise and gone and run off. To look in that direction is to run in that direction. We don't look at some faulty church member. We don't run looking to the preacher. We run the race. And we look to Jesus. Our Savior. Our constant Helper. An example is well enough in its place, but you and I need more than that. We need more than an example. An example can be discouraging and depressing and disheartening. It would be useless if William Shakespeare came back to life today. And for Shakespeare to hand me a copy of Hamlet's Soliloquy and say, you need to write like that. It's not going to happen. Or Ezekiel Elliott. Some of you know who he is. Ezekiel Elliott lowers his head, goes through the middle of the opposing team's defense for a 50-yard touchdown run, throws me the football, says, now go there and do likewise. You're kidding, right? In that same way, it's useless for Jesus to walk from the manger to the cross and tell me to live that way. 
Jesus has to do more than set me an example. And praise God, He did. He saved me. He promised to keep me. And He promised to give me the power to follow Him. Jesus has promised to save me and keep me and give me the power to follow Him. And Jesus keeps His promises. No man and no woman who runs the race with their eyes fixed upon Jesus ever loses that race. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, John would write, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Are you looking to Jesus this morning? Is He the author and the finisher of your faith? Have you ever in simple trusting faith, repenting of everything that's sin in your life, confessed His name and been buried in the waters of baptism? If you haven't, it's time to fix your eyes upon Jesus. And if you've done that, but you haven't followed Him, you haven't looked to Him as the author and finisher of your faith, and you need to make changes. Whatever changes need to be made in your life this morning, this is the opportunity to do that as we stand. And